Welcome to the Design Matters podcast, where we discuss popular topics and new ideas in design. Our student hosts look to create insightful conversations with today's leaders of design in the built environment. My name is John Bazook. I'm an architecture student with the University of Calgary School of Architecture, Planning, and Landscape Architecture. I'm Emily Kang, a student with Landscape Architecture Program at the University of Calgary. This season, we are looking at how we can listen to understand, rather than listen to respond, with the intentions of emerging as more compassionate designers. How can we identify design biases and exclusions found in our built environment? We seek to learn from people related to each theme and to begin thinking about proposed possibilities for landing on definitive solutions. Our objective is to examine design decisions that have shaped our physical world. We are interested in bringing awareness to these decisions and to challenge current design standards. As future designers, we want to investigate how to listen. Today's episode asks the question of how can we design homes for the culturally displaced? How can we create a cultural mosaic? We have invited three guests to the show today to answer four questions that break down this heavy topic. We ask them to introduce themselves before sharing their thoughts. I'm, I'm Jamie Inacascu. I'm uh, an immigrant to this country. Uh, I've worked uh, with a lot of immigrants. That has been my main work uh, as part of United Way and as small organizations. Helped settle many people in this country and got a lot of experience in that. Atta. Sisa Hal Eagletail Atta. Tsutuna Ujanista. Good morning. My name is Hal Eagletail. I come from the Tsutuna Nation, part of the Dene language-speaking people. We stretch from Alaska down to Mexico. And in Canada, there's over 600 native bands. We all belong to one of 11 language groups. And my language group is Dene. So my name is Srimal Ranasinghe, and I'm a planning consultant. I work with uh, mostly, I spend most of my time working with uh, Hive Developments, which involves working with uh, the real estate development industry groups. And I also work with Sustainable Calgary, which is a nonprofit, which does community planning work at the intersection of planning, design, and public health. The first question we asked is, how do we design to promote healthy community inclusions? How do we build a social mosaic? Let's start with Shermal's response. I'm going to point to a couple of things. One of them is when it comes to um, sort of economic systems, right? Uh, we have a fairly narrow kind of definition of what an economy is or should be. Uh, and there's this paradigm that constantly pits kind of these two forces, you know, the market and the state against each other, which is one way of, of understanding an economy. But it, I'd say it's sort of a narrow kind of framing of it. And there's been some interesting work being done recently, particularly by the economist Kate Rayworth, uh, who proposed this something called the donut model of, of the economy, which I think is, re- is, really, is really fantastic because I think it really embraces the sort of the, a wider range of what, what the a wider view of what the economy is and should be as well. I, th- I think a few things that, that, that would um, address your question around, you know, health, healthy inclusion for people. And they kind of fall into two buckets that are not completely separate, but that are connected to each other, which is policy and practice. In, term, in terms of practice, I'd say, you know, participatory planning processes are really important when it comes to to designing places that include people from a, from a wide 
from a wide variety, but also sort of navigate the tension of a, of the historical place and story of that particular place and community. So the capacity to be able to look back at the future, look back at the past, while also looking to the future and kind of join the bridge of the two together. It's important to have sort of have that ongoing participatory planning process. All well and good to say that, but implementing that can be really complicated and 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 really, you know, tough to do. Okay, well, I always want to go back first to how how do you start thinking about these things? Um, first, you take yourself, like many of you that are listening, will be listening to this podcast, will be immigrants themselves, right? So things are not very far off. And when you start thinking about yourself, about maybe classmates, your family, think about who people who were not from here or not born here. Do we think them as different? Because very often we think, oh, poor refugees, and we see the pictures in our minds from people uh, in uh, refugee camps and uh, desperate mother with the five children. And I think we have to get a very realistic picture. Look first around you, who's a refugee, who is an immigrant, and talk to them, right? Maybe they're not in many ways as different as we think sometimes. So demystify first a subject always. Um, are they like us? Uh, there is usually more similarities and differences. So uh, clear up the, mis uh, the misunderstandings always first. Think who they are, where you are. Um, I'm sure maybe your parents came here, maybe you came here, maybe your grandparents came here and listen to their stories. Always related to something very close to you. That's, I think, always the trick to, to make it sound very, very close to you. Well, definitely the uh, healthy inclusion would be to allow First Nations cultural evolution to evolve and to be a part of our everyday normal lifestyle. The social mosaic of it all is that we all come from different backgrounds, whether it's uh, religiously or education level, knowledge of uh, spiritual, cultural, herbal teachings. And this uh, can create some issues within a First Nation community because of the um, evolution of losing a lot of our identity uh, through the historical traumas that we have gone through. But the blessing is our Native communities are still thriving, as well as still maintaining language, song, dance, ceremony. We're certainly able and willing to share our knowledge with the world. Question two, what kinds of questions should be asked when designing for the culturally displaced? The first question I would ask is if the participants have ever visited a First Nation community to uh, get a sense of the cultural uh, and also designs, um, techniques, colors. Every nation has different designs, different colors, and we all have a very similar tradition, just a, a little bit different customs when it comes to, um, to our, our spiritual practices. So the more 
experience and, and opportunity you have to visit with your local First Nations, I think the better you'll have an opportunity to, to be less displaced. I think first of all, the same as uh, first meet with some people and think about their lives. Think what they've gone through. Um, what is their future? Um, one of the main things when we talk uh, externally displaced, usually about refugees, and um, the difference between immigrants and refugees, immigrants plan to come. They choose a different country. They choose a different future. They have time to prepare, usually many, many years. And very often they already have family and friends here. So it's very different for refugees. Refugees didn't plan to come here. They didn't choose to leave. They didn't prepare. And often they don't know till um, just before they leave where they're going. So they arrive, they don't speak the language very often. Um, many of them are in a state of shock. Um, they are maybe not at all convinced that they want to stay here. They, many of them will stay, but I think they might not have made that decision yet. They might not be ready to make connections in a country. So they might be in some ways a little bit forced to, to reach out to the community. It's very different than somebody who's made that decision. Now, some refugees, like for example, my husband is a refugee as well. He came um, in the early eighties. Um, he was convinced like this refugees, this is what he wanted. He never wanted to look back. And his only aim was to settle here. And I think you need to know there's definitely from both sides, there's people. So, um, but what is often forgotten, um, uh, home uh, housing is obviously very diff uh, important, but you need to make a connection with the housing as well. Um, I think what a lot of the refugees are looking for is um, a sense of control over their lives. Um, that is also connected to employment. Yes, housing is very, very important. Safety, obviously, uh, paramount important safety, but also employment. It's that sense that you can take care of yourself is extremely important. So when you design for people, I think they need to be part of a community. There need to be some connection with employment and reaching out. It's on one hand, the safety for some people, the safety to feel safe will take time. And you, in the design that you do, you really have to take that into account. Safety where people can withdraw from the world, they can take time to, um, to um, acclimatize and to, you know, uh, maybe have a sigh of relief that they've, they're here. But then give them that connection with the community, an easy connection. Um, is there something that you can connect them that they have maybe shops close by, uh, maybe a connection with the neighbors, maybe um, designing something around a community that uh, meeting people 
is part of their daily lives rather than them being really, really isolated. It's not a specific question, but it's more maybe a way of asking the question. The importance of uh, networks of social capital, because I think traditionally we've had, we've had this idea of like, okay, so when you're planning uh, in Calgary specifically, you go to these organizations or institutions that exist to represent the community, right? But what we've also found is that there isn't really like the community is is a very artificial construct because there are like so many different communities within the community. So let's speak, I mean, go to Chinatown again, like, you know, you have the community of Chinatown, but, it, you know, it represents people of different language groups, different, uh, you know, ethnic groups, different interest groups. Uh, Chinatown alone has like over 150 registered organizations and societies within the geographical boundaries of Chinatown, right? But it's really interesting because when you dwell, when you delve in, you find that actually the vast majority of them uh, are led by the same 12 to 14 individuals. Uh, and you often have the same people sort of represent in a lot of these groups. So it is really rare to find some of those organizations that I was like, oh, here's a group of people that I haven't come across before. So that's one piece. And I think Chinatown is a, is a bit of an anomaly because most of the communities that we go to are, are sort of the polar opposite where you have very little institutional representation or organizational representation uh, of the residents and the community itself. So then we really have to cast our nets a little wider and say, okay, the community association does not really represent the, the community at large because it only represents a very small segment of the community. So how do we find where the social capital is and where, like where people's networks are and where they're plugged in? And that's the first question. And the second question being like, how do we actually connect with them once we've figured out where they are? Question three, in your experience, what has been successful and what has not? So when we design a building, we'll have our nation leadership, our nation elders, some of our youth and our developers sitting down with the architects and designing a cultural identity into the structure. Good example is our band administration office, our Chief Joseph Big Plume building. It's designed to be a beaver dam and the council chambers is a beaver lodge. And if you ever fly over at night and all the lights are on, it's, it's symbolic of an eagle with its wings um, open. So those subtle uh, interpretations is what sets us apart from the rest of uh, development society. But it also gives us a, a leadership role in, in, in being professional and, 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 and successful as any individual or company or corporation strive for in, in, in Canada. So I think that's a good balance that we've uh, been able to, to, um, to find and, and to learn from. The project I was involved in um, taught me lots of lessons, and it was in Northeast Calgary, and it was around the Genesis Center. Um, it was a community center built there, I remember too when we went to the architects, they had their first drawings and they had, um, we gave them what we more or less what we wanted. And uh, so they had uh, in the area uh, large corridors with offices on both sides. 
And we looked at that and thought, wow, that looks like a prison or like an office. And then we realized too, we should have given them way better information. You know, this is, yes, maybe we got exactly what we asked for. So we said, well, let's turn this around. So we invited a community with us and we did actually two roundtables uh, where we um, uh, kind of played architects with the community. And we also gave the architects all the conversations we had with the community. And we realized we never did that. We never made them part of it. So amazingly, we had two designs, one from the community, one for the architects. And it was fairly similar. It was amazing. So the community said, we want a fireplace in there. We want a kitchen in there. You know, all these things that you never, you know, why would you build that in there? And actually, most of the designers had maybe slight differences, but it was amazing. Uh, And once we realized what information we needed to give them, and they understood that they needed to listen, it was quite marvelous. Um, But what we learned is that it takes an enormous effort to especially invite people. And simple things like time of day for meetings. How do you include people? Uh, Respecting their schedules. Um, In the center now, when you see Friday afternoon is prayer afternoon. That's why I started to listen first, always listen first and involve people. Don't presume because you're the architect or the builder that you know better, right? Question four, can we design spaces to heal trauma, to heal the culturally displaced? One of the traumas was being culturally displaced as uh, government policy. You know, it was government policy to initiate Indian Act to regulate the evolution and, and, and the successfulness of First Nations within the reserve structure. And another one was to strip the cultural and spiritual practices of our indigenous people. So our spiritual leaders at the time went underground with these knowledge and the bundles and and, and the ceremonies and and the rites of passage uh, ceremonies. Without uh, that commitment to preserve it in in solitude, it came to today's day and age where we're still able to practice our, our cultural identity. And we actually have in some cases where the uh, government is funding the uh, preservation of these practices. So things really come full circle uh, from, from uh, uh, a policy assimilation to inclusion and and adapting uh, this practice for us to heal and to use the the, uh, traditions to help those uh, going through uh, those individual traumas. I think, first of all, the same as uh, first meet with some people and think about their lives, think what they've gone through. what is their future? 
Um, one of the main things when we talk uh, externally displaced, usually about refugees, and they didn't choose to leave. They didn't prepare. And often they don't know till um, just before they leave where they're going. So they arrive, they don't speak the language very often. Um, many of them are in a state of shock. Um, they are maybe not at all convinced that they want to stay here. They, many of them will stay, but I think they might not have made that decision yet. They might not be ready to make connections in a country. So they might be in some ways a little bit forced to, to reach out to the community. It's very different than somebody who's made that decision. I think what a lot of the refugees are looking for is um, a sense of control over their lives. And that is also connected to employment. Yes, housing is very, very important. Safety, obviously, paramount important safety, but also employment. It's that sense that you can take care of yourself is extremely important. So when you design for people, I think they need to be part of a community. There need to be some connection with employment and reaching out. It's on one hand, the safety for some people, the safety to feel safe will take time. And you, in the design that you do, you really have to take that into account. Safety where people can withdraw from the world, then can take time to, um, to um, acclimatize and to, you know, uh, maybe have a sigh of relief that they've, they're here. But then give them that connection with the community, an easy connection. Um, is there something that you can connect them that they have maybe shops close by, uh, maybe a connection with the neighbors, maybe um, designing something around a community that uh, meeting people is part of their daily lives rather than them being really, really isolated. So it's that, that two sides that they need, right? The, the side of the very safety that they can withdraw, but also that they do have connections, that they don't withdraw completely. So it's something that they both need. Now, often when there's kids involved, you know, when kids are involved, they need playgrounds, they need playmates, they need uh, you know, something to draw them out. And uh, parents often follow the children in as refugees. Children are easily, quickly to move on, and they will bring their parents with them. So the same when you design, when you have things, have you designed for refugees and they have families, um, the parents will come out when there's something for the children to do or when the children are pulling them out. So think about that too. Those links, what brings them out? Work, kids, um, when they need to go shopping. Um, connect all those things to the place where they live. And you don't see for organized hockey or something, it needs to be simple where the kids go. Like organized hockey, well, it's, it's a bit of a leap sometimes, right? And it's, it's also very Canadian and, and uh, 
uh, harder for immigrants to connect to. So simple things that the kids can and do. And um, yeah, you know, the sense of control, I think uh, refugees don't have their own sense of control anymore. Life has taken over. So what, what gives them a sense of control? And don't always think about providing everything for them. They need to find that sense of control in being able to pay their own rent or being able to take care of their lives, being able to pay for something. I think those things are very often overlooked and just uh, handouts um, is great when we need to. Absolutely, that safety is fantastic. But I think they're looking for something that they will find back the control over their lives. That is extremely important. As uh, someone who's a child of refugees, I could not agree more with what you oh. said. It, it <laughs> is glad. very true. I think um, the desire for... Um, my parents came here when they were teenagers, but uh, certainly mm -hmm. the sense of autonomy, independence, yeah. and security for themselves and their children was... Um, imperative um it was i don't know what my parents wouldn't have given to make sure that we were safe and that we had a home um and to sow a sense of belonging um mm -hmm. where we were and you're right i don't think a lot of people think that uh they don't think about the choice factor mm -hmm. a lot of people think that they chose to come to canada that's a rhetoric i heard a lot growing mm -hmm. up and it's it's not always yeah. true and they don't want to go back because in some cases it's lethal if they do. So I, I think that's important to bring to the dialogue. So some interesting takeaways I took from that episode, from the sort of designer's point of view, it seemed that all the panelists were really stressing the importance of putting yourself into and the shoes of the user themselves, into the, to the culturally displaced, to try to understand them, not really coming at it with an ego point of view, thinking that us as designers and us with all the experiences and us with the kind of amount of schooling, what have you, think that we have all the answers. It's almost like designing by like a case-by-case -case process. What do you think, Emily? Yeah, I thought along similar lines, the emphasis on empathy and to, I think, more Hal's and Jamie's point of as designers or as other people that are trying to create things to accommodate people that have been displaced is actually reaching out to them. I think that they both made really good points of how do you get how do you as a designer create opportunities for community inclusion and to allow them to create a sense of autonomy for themselves? That was a word that just rang through my head so much throughout each of the conversation. It's letting people have a sense of control over their lives and understanding that there is not always a choice in the situation that they're in and as a designer, we should be very sensitive and mindful of it. You know, looking at uh, Sermal's kind of responses to how he really kind of looked at Chinatown with his work and his experiences. And, you know, from the outside, what we see, but really his take on going into that community itself 
by and large and really looking at like all the dense layers that were into it and how complicated the interworkings is and sort of at face value um, is one approach. But if you really start to dive into those realms, how like deep the layers go and how like organized it is, yet how it's, it's difficult because there's so many layers and people involved and it's such a community within a community within a community. I think each of our panels made really good points on being empathetic and how we can be more involved in the act of inclusion in the design process with who we're designing for. And that's something we should definitely carry forward. Today's episode was produced by John Bazook and Emily Kang in partnership with CJSW. Research was also done by John Bazook and Emily Kang. Music by Vikram Johal. Credits read by Emily Kang. Big thanks to all our guests for coming onto our podcast. A special thanks to Catherine Hamill for her mentorship this season. And of course, Vida Leung and the University of Calgary's School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape Architecture for all their support. Coming up next, we will be asking the question, is universal design for everyone? What are some of the design biases and where are places that lack universal design? Stay tuned to hear from our next panel of guests. Thanks for listening today. And if you're looking for more information about our guests today and the Design Matters lecture series, you can head over to our website at sapl.ucalgary.ca.